Hi there, I'm James Minor, one of the leaders of the church, and I just wanted to welcome you to our podcast. I hope it stirs, inspires, and encourages you. Our pastor, David Dark, will be preaching for us. Enjoy the message. Prologue. As Pilot walked through a forest in deep contemplation about the carpenter, a thick mist was present, adding to its phantasmal gas to the damp breath of the forest. The mist glided with deadly intent. The mist deadened the sound, haunted the glades and poured into empty spaces. A sephrical silence overhung the hallow ground where the trees dared not grow. Nothing stirred, nothing shone, nothing sang. A hollow echoing like the hushed tones of a great slab cathedral entombed the woods. Then a finger of supernal light poked through the misty mesh. It was followed by a whole loom of light filtering down in seams of gold, like the luminal glow of the gods. It chased the shadows away, banished the gloom and spilled into spaces where the mist once stalked. Pilot heard the fluty piping of the songbirds split the silence, just as the forest became flooded with light. Is that what happened with me and the Nazarene? Pilot thought. Was my mind engulfed with a mist? A mist of believing wrong things? Was the Nazarene's word a loom of light breaking through? Was the truth invading? Was the truth penetrating? Did the truth almost intrude? Did the truth almost intrude? Part 2 of Balance of Power The Truth Almost Intruded Questions Pilot swaps roles with Caiaphas and takes the part of a prophet. When does this occur? Next question. The moment when Pilot is most fearful of Christ. When does it happen? And why does it happen? The last question. The threefold silence. An act of silence that all have diametrically different results and motives. What were they? And who were they with? John chapter 19, starting at verse 5. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man! Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault with him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. 
Therefore, when Pilate heard that, saying he was more afraid, and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greatest sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he thought he brought Jesus out and sat in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gagatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. Part two, balance of power. The truth almost intruded. We'll start from, we ended in verse 5 last week. We start in verse 6, John 19, verse 6. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, you, you take him and crucify him. For I find no fault in him. When the chief priests saw him, they cried out. Their fiendish rage, kindling afresh at the sight of him, Christ. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him. For I find no fault in him. As if this would relieve Pilate of the responsibility of the deed who by surrendering him incurred it all. As William Shakespeare said, the English dramatist, playwright, poet lived in the 1500s and early 1600s. Will all Neptune's oceans wash this blood clean from my hands? Regardless of what Pilate is saying, regardless of him trying to wash himself or wash his hands of the blood of Christ, to evade responsibility. All of the oceans of Neptune, all of the oceans of his gods would not be able to cleanse his hands. He's implicated. Pilate is close to this. Pilate is embroidered in this situation. Pilate is intricately connected. By making a profession or making a platitude or a statement, it does not absolve him from his part. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, We have a law and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Their criminal charges having come to nothing. They give up that point. And now the Jews are playing another game in order to get Christ condemned and to get him crucified. And as Pilate was throwing the whole responsibility upon them, the Jews, 
they retreat into their own Jewish law by which as claiming equality with God is what they're going to pin on Christ. But it wasn't wrong and it was not inaccurate. In John 5.18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, Jesus, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. John 10 verse 13, I and my father are one. And so because of this, Caiaphas and the Sadducees are articulating he ought to die insinuating that it was Pilate's duty even as civil governor to protect their Jewish law from insults. They had arraigned Jesus on the charge before the Sanhedrin and condemned him for it. But this was not the charge on which they had arraigned him before Pilate. They had accused him of sedition. On seditious charge, they were now convinced that they could not get Pilate to condemn him. So they switch. He declared him innocent, still bent on his ruin. And resolved to gain their purpose, they now, contrary to their first intention, adduce the original accusation on which they had already pronounced him guilty. If they could not obtain his condemnation as a rebel, they now sought it as a blasphemer. And they appealed to Pilate to sanction what they believed was required in their law. Thus, to Pilate himself, it became more manifest that he was innocent, that they had attempted to deceive him, and that the charge on which they had arraigned him was a mere pretense to obtain his sanction to their wicked design. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have, we have, but going back to verse 6, when they made that statement, crucify him, crucify him, Pilate said to them, you, this you is said with an emphatic pronoun, Pilate is pointing the metaphorical pistol at them and say, you, you, pronoun, emphatic, it's you. This is down to you. What you choose to do with Christ, it's you. Your decision, your choices, what is going through your mind, what is being processed through your heart, it's all about you. A generation today where everyone tries the escape door and the escape hatch with Christ, Making out that they have nothing to do with him dying on the cross. Nothing to do with him shedding his blood. Trying to make him into some nice box of religion. But it is you, our sin, that caused Christ to come down and die on the cross. What you decide to do with him. How you decide to communicate with him. How you decide to walk with him. How you decide to abandon him. 
him, how you decide to have a personal relationship with him, how you decide to live for him on his terms and not on our terms, how you, it is the emphatic you, every man on planet earth will be addressed by our creator, what did you do with Christ? In verse 7, then the Jews answered him, we have a law and according to our law, he ought to die because he made, he made himself the son of God. He made himself the son of God. This is their perception. This is how they see things. The Jews answered him, We have a law. Present indicative attitude. Literally, they continuously have a lifestyle where they live for their law, their Jewish law, their Jewish custom. But the problem is, that's all it is. It is dead to them. It is not alive. It is not animated. They have the living God. Whereas before, they went into Babylon because of their dead idols. Now they have the embodiment of life, but they keep going to the law, and the law is is only a shadow of Christ. It's only a shadow of what is to come. Now they've got the substance. Now they've got the real thing. This is the heart of man and this is the heart of mankind where they love the shadow but they don't love the substance. Where they love the platitudes but they don't love the real thing. Man is enamored with religion but they're not enamored with a living God. They have the living God right before their rise, but what they do is a bait and switch. They flow, they go, and they run, and they flee to something which is not living, something which can identify sin. It can shine the light on sin. It can point out sin, but the law is unable, as John Milton said, to take away sin. The person who is before them has the ability has the prowess, has the skill, and has the kudos with the Godhead to actually take away sin. It was the man Soren Kierkegaard, lived round about the 1800s, Danish philosopher, poet, and social critic said, what if everything in the world were a misunderstanding? What if laughter were really tears? And this is what Pilate's going to find out. And this is what Caiaphas will eventually find out. Everything that you are trying to punt on is an absolute misunderstanding. You think you're going to gain the victory in getting Jesus of Nazareth crucified, but it's only going to be yourself that you crucify in your own mind, in your own being, and then in the afterlife. You are living one major misunderstanding. People who choose to reject Christ their whole life is one big misunderstanding. They think they've escaped 
escaped boredom. They think they've escaped their life from being kind of like taken down and bogged down. They think that they've escaped a life of drudgery that they're open to every pleasure, every entertainment, that Christ is going to reign on their parade. It's only in the afterlife and it's only when you actually come to the real genuine life that you understand and you see that man lives a great, vast, paramount misunderstanding for Christ has not come to take away our life but Christ has come to give us life interludes even as he said it take him Pilate could feel himself sliding through the corridors of desperation he was in the bowels away from civilization, passing through doorways without doors and rooms without occupants. He was leaving the very essence of life. Worse than that, Pilate's hands was being forced to crucify the essence of life. Pilate is stumbling on, it's all wrong, he's groping for a path and finding none, he knew that to protest at all was to protest too much, but he felt a compulsion and went on protesting all the same, anyway, verse 9, where are you from? Pilate demanded of Jesus, desperately trying to recover the initiative. Pilate knows this whole saga is a hundred shades of wrongness. These priests are also unraveling fast. All the veneer of their civility faded. At first, all their expressions of confiding in Pilate and squeezing of the eyes for extra intimacy. Earlier, the priest guided Pilate by their emotional manipulation to his judgment chair. Or maybe his naughty chair with arms for a long stay until he capitulated to the Sadducees' will to give them the outcome they want. All the threats of informing to Tiberius Caesar to put the wind up him, telling Pilate the gloves are off and what big eyes the Sanhedrin has. Don't let the truth invade Pilate. You can't afford to. Aristophanes, the comic playwright, ancient philosopher of Athens, lived round about 400 BC. Wise people, even though all the laws were abolished, would still lead the same life. Pilots, even if your Roman laws were to be abolished, even if the Roman laws were no more. What does your conscience tell you to do? According to Roman law, you know this man should be set free. You know he's innocent. Even if the Roman laws went up in smoke, Pilate, does not your conscience tell you to do what you know to do? Verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. 
While Jesus was accused only as a disturber of the peace of the nation, which accusation Pilate knew to be false, he knew he could deliver him. Because the judgment in that case belonged to himself. But when the Jews brought a charge against him of the most capital nature from their own laws, he then saw that he had everything to fear. If he did not deliver Jesus to their will, the Sanhedrin must not be offended. The populace must not be irritated from the former. A complaint might be against him to Caesar. The populace might revolt or proceed to some acts of violence. The end of which could not be foreseen. Pilate was certainly to be pitied. He saw what was right and he wished to do it. But he had not sufficient firmness of mind. He did not attend to that important maxim, that Latin maxim of the Romans, fiat justitia ruat celum, let justice be done, though the heavens should be dissolved. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, German playwright, poet, novelist and dramatist in the 17th Hundreds, he said, the really unhappy person is the one who leaves undone what they can do and starts doing what they don't understand. No wonder they come to grief. Pilate, why don't you do what you can do? Why don't you implement what you are able to implement? Why don't you execute what you have got the ability and you have got the gravitas and the position to execute? Because you're doing something that you don't understand. You're about to open up Pandora's box. You stick this man on the cross, your whole life will change. Why do people do what they don't have to do? Why do people keep walking past the Christ, not accepting Christ, always procrastinating in the day that they will accept Christ? I'm not ready today. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll get saved tomorrow. I'll get saved on my deathbed. You're playing with things you don't understand. Because it says salvation is not of man, it's of God. And when the Spirit of the Lord calls, just like he called in the wilderness, do not harden your heart like the Israel did in the wilderness. Respond, do what you're able to do. Respond by the intuition that the Holy Spirit will speak into your heart, into your cardia, into the Hebrews called the Labeb, into that inner organ. When he speaks to that organ, react, respond, don't procrastinate, do what you're able to do, do what you know to do, execute, implement, do it now, 
Otherwise, you will end up in a world, in an ether that you don't understand. Like Matthew chapter 7, you stand before God and then you will be saying to him, after Hades has released you, after Hades is about to be thrown into the lake of fire, when Hades releases you, you will say to God, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not do great works in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I didn't know you. And at that point, you won't understand. Because you never done what was needed to be done. When the spirit of the Lord will convict you and say, do it. Receive Christ now. Serve him now. Give him your best years now. Give him everything you've got now. Don't wait. Don't procrastinate. Don't put it off. Otherwise, you will end up in a dimension in the afterlife that you will not understand. The only thing you will understand is forever. You are separated from the Lord. Pilate, do what you know to do. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom possesses pronoun, my kingdom, the kingdom that I possess, the kingdom that I reign over with the dream team, with the Godhead, my kingdom is mine. Thereby, Pilate, I dictate who gets inside it. I dictate who's left outside of it. Not you. My kingdom. No man comes to the son unless the father has drawn him to me. My kingdom. No man will get into heaven according to their own tactics. According to their own strategy. According to their own works. For no man shall be justified by the works of their law. No man shall be justified by their good deeds. And their good ethics. And helping people and charitable work. No. The only way to get into possessive pronoun. My kingdom is according to my blood. And according to forgiveness. And not that you just make me the soteria. The saviour. No. You make me the Lord. You make me curious that you not only receive forgiveness from me but you must allow me to be your lord in other words surrender to me my kingdom were of this world my servants would fight that word fight it's in the imperfect tense what Jesus is saying is, my servants can fight, but no matter how much they fight in this world, it will never be complete enough for heaven or to bring heaven down. No matter how much my people will fight, it will be an incomplete process. No matter... If I get an army and Peter raises up a battalion and the disciples go to war pilot, it's not going to bring my kingdom come. It is incomplete. 
I'm not looking for a kingdom theology where we've got to take over all of the institutions and we've got to bring the kingdom here. Literally, all of the institutions, all of the houses of parliament, all of the regal places of state and the nations and, and to rule an earthly Christian kingdom. No, I look for the heavenly country. I look for the rapture. I look for the snatch. I look for the, for when he comes the harpezo and he snatches us away that heavenly country that heavenly place and when he comes back at the second coming then we can have our earthly kingdom with a thousand years of the millennial kingdom but until then if it's not down my tactic is not to fight because that is imperfect so that i should not be delivered to the jews but now my kingdom is not from here Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king, because I was born Janao, I was regenerated, procreated on this earth, for this cause I have come, Ekomai, literally to make one's appearance, I've come before the public, for this cause, into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth, everyone who is of the truth, Alalathea, the unveiled reality, lying at the basis of and agreeing with the appearance and the fear pilot that's the truth here's my voice pilot said to him what what interrogative pronoun tis what i'm interrogating you what i'm questioning you i'm putting your back against the wall carpenter of nazareth but you're interrogating him. Pilate, why don't you interrogate him for the truth? Why don't you let the truth intrude? Why don't you let the truth explode in your soul to make you make a practical decision to surrender to him who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Many people want to interrogate Christ instead of accepting Christ. They want to question Christ instead of surrendering to Christ. They want to ask Christ all of these penetrating and probing kind of like statements and why did this happen and why did that happen and why did it? And as they're asking, they're putting a force field. They're putting something around them to buffer them against from yielding to Christ. But it's all an evasion. The issue is not the issue. What is really occurring is the Garden of Eden dynamic. They're running away from Christ. Putting on fig leaves to hide their nakedness, to hide their shame, to hide the lifestyle, which even before their own mother, they wouldn't show their own mother in the light, let alone show an awesome, powerful God in the light who even the darkness is light to him, the source of all light, the truth pilot, the truth. And whoever and anyone who's of the truth, they hear my voice pilot. 
Pilate said to him, What is the truth? What is the truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Pilate, the truth almost invaded. The truth almost intruded, Pilate. You asked the question, but you didn't wait for an answer. You asked the question, but it's like you really did not want an answer. You asked the question, but it's like you were running away from an answer. The truth almost intruded. It almost intruded, Pilate. C.S. Lewis said, from the moment a creature becomes aware of God as God and of itself as self, the terrible alternative of choosing God or self for the center is open to it. Is it because you want to remain the center of your life, pilot? You don't want this Nazarene carpenter to have right away in your life, to be the dominant factor in your life. You want to stay in the middle. You want to be in the epicenter that you're not even going to risk the truth intruding. Verse 9, and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. He had said enough. The time for answering such a question was past. The weak and wavering governor is already on the point of giving way. Matthew 27 verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, literally, while Pilate was sitting, this message was probably received when he had resumed his place on the judgment seat after Jesus had been sent to Herod. Have you nothing to do? That is, do not condemn him. Perhaps she was afraid, Pilate's wife, that the vengeance of heaven would follow her husband and then in turn follow her family if he condemned the innocent carpenter from Nazareth. Pilate says, you're not speaking to me? This is an expression of a man of pride. He was not accustomed to be met with silence like this. 
He endeavoured therefore to address the fears of Jesus and to greatly dismay him with the declaration that his life was at his disposal and that his safety depended on his favour. This arrogance called forth the reply of the Saviour and he told Pilate that he had no power except what was given him from above. Jesus was not, therefore, to be intimidated by any claim of power in Pilate. His life was not in Pilate's hands, and he could not stoop to ask the favour of man. Virgil, Pilate probably would have known Virgil, the ancient Roman Latin poet and author of the epic, Aeneid, lived round about 70 to 19 BC. They attack one man with their hate and a shower of weapons, but he is like some rock which stretches into the vast sea and which exposed to the fury of the winds and beaten against by the waves endures all violence. Pilate, the person you are dealing with now is not going to capitulate to any threats. He's not even going to ingratiate you that you are kind of offering him his life. He is fully cognizant, Pilate, that his life is not in your Roman hands. You could be part of the greatest superpower of the ancient world, where this man, quote, God is from. It supersedes an earthly superpower. It supersedes even a universal superpower. It encapsulates everything. The throne room of where he is from rules everywhere. Omnipresent, omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent. Everywhere, everywhere. Pilate, don't offer him his life. The question is, he should be offering you your life. Interlude. What Pilate was said to write to his friend Gaius. Gaius, I tried to free him. From that moment on I tried and I always think he knew. I declared him out of my jurisdiction, being a Galilean. But a native king, Herod, discovered he was born in Judea and sent him right back to me. I appealed to the crowd, hoping that they would be his sympathizers. But Caiaphas has stationed agitators to whip up the beast that cry for blood. And you know how in this town here, any citizen loves the blood of another person just after breakfast and screams for another's blood. 
I had him beaten, Gaius. A thorough barracks room beating. I'm still not sure why to appease the crowd, I guess. But do we Romans really need any reason for beatings? Isn't that the code for anything we don't understand? Well, it didn't work, Gaius. The crowd roared like some slavering beast. When I brought him back, if only you could have watched him. They have thrown some rags of purple over his bulk and bleeding shoulders. They had jammed a crown of thorns down on his forehead. And it fitted. It fitted Gaius. He stood there watching them from my balcony. Flamed from weakness by now. But royal, I tell you, Gaius. Royal he was. Not just pain. But pity shining from his eyes. And I kept thinking somehow, this is monstrous. This is upside down. That purple is real. That crown is real. And somehow, these animal noises, the crowd is shrieking, should be praised, Gaius. Should be praised. C.S. Lewis. In his book, A Grief Observed, said this, Bridge players, tell me that there must be some money on the game, or else people won't take it seriously. Apparently it's like that. Your bid for God or no God, for a good God or a cosmic sadist, for eternal life or a non-entity, will not be serious if nothing much is staked on it. And you will never discover how serious it was until the stakes are raised horribly high. Until you find that you are playing not just for counters or for six pences, but for every penny you have in the world. Nothing less will shake a man. Or at any rate, a man like me, out of his merely verbal thinking and his merely notional beliefs. He has to be knocked silly before he comes to his senses. Only torture will bring out the truth. Only under torture does he discover himself. Saying there needs to be some skin in the game. There needs to be high stakes. Pilot, you are playing with very high stakes. You are moving and you are playing a delicate balancing game with eternity. You're in a volatile place, Pilot. The stakes are very, very high. C.S. Lewis writes this book after the death of his wife. In interacting with God, when the stakes are not high, people flirt with him. When the stakes are not high, people patronize God. When the stakes are not high, People dismiss God, but when the stakes are high and now you come to the issue of life and death and it's breathing down your neck, now the stakes are high. 
And the move you make better be the correct one. It better be a gamble that you have thought about. Because if you get this wrong, you're not dealing with minor implications. You're not dealing with fleeting consequences. You are dealing with monumental, eternal issues. You're dealing with the afterlife. You're dealing with infinity's fallout. You better play it right, pilot. You better play it right. Verse 10. Then says Pilate unto him, You're speaking not to me? Me? Emphatic word in the question. He falls back. Pilate falls back upon the pride of his office, which doubtless tended to be blunt, the workings of his conscience. His office that he relies upon. His office that he's kind of standing upon. But your office is no rock. It can't blunt what you need to do, pilot. I want a yes or I want a no. If it's yes, then who are you? John 19 verse 10. Then pilot said to him, are you not speaking? Laleo, are you not saying? Are you not saying anything to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power exousia? I've got the choice exousia. I've got the liberty exousia. I've got the privilege to do whatever I choose to do. No, you haven't, pilots. You have not got the ability to release him. You have not got the ability to crucify him. You've not even really got the ability to talk to him. You only have the ability and the capacity because heaven has given it to you. Don't get it twisted, pilots. At any time that you will learn in our next series or our next part called the Kenosis, you will learn you have no control in this. The only thing you have control to do is with your free will, extricate yourself from this. Remove yourself from guilt. Play a noble hand pilot. As Christ goes on to saying, you have no power at all against me. Neither to crucify, nor to release, nor to do anything whatever against me. Except it were, unless it had been. That unless that heaven had given, had yielded, pilots, you're a pawn. But you're not a pawn 
That is a robotic porn that you are forced to do things that you don't want to do. But heaven's going to use your vacillating, uncommitted, double-minded heart to bring about its purposes. Given D from above, that is, you think too much of your power pilots. Against me, that power is none, save what it is meted out to you by special divine appointment for a special end. Therefore, he that delivered me to you, Caiaphas, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, but he only as representing the Jewish authorities as a body has the greater sin. Has the greater sin as having better opportunities and more knowledge of such matters. Has the greater sin. It is sin in you to condemn me, Christ. While you are convinced in your conscience, Pilate, that I am innocent. But the Jews who delivered me to you and the Judas who also betrayed me and delivered me to the Jews have a greater crime to answer for because they claim to have more light. But yet they lead the people into a pit. They have more to answer for. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan preacher, lived round about 600, 1600. He said, there are three things that earthly riches can never do. They can never satisfy divine justice. They can never pacify divine wrath. Nor can they ever quiet a guilty conscience. Until these things are done, man is undone. Means nothing about your palatial surroundings, pilot. Are you going to stay in your role? Will they not report you to Tiberius Caesar if you have me killed and you do their bidding? What riches are you going to get? Is Caiaphas going to cut you in with his extortion and his money-making racket in the temple? Is he going to give you a cut of that polluted money, pilot? What benefits will you get, pilot? What benefits will you get by capitulating to the sons of Bilal? The pilots, all the money in the world, all the palaces in the world, even if Tiberius Caesar promotes you, it will never be able to quiet your conscience, pilots. It will never be able to quiet your conscience.
verse 11. Jesus answered, You can have no power at all against me unless it had been given. Unless it had been given. Perfect passive. Given perfect passive. Meaning the perfect completed in the past yet results occurring in the present. Jesus has died in the past approximately 2,000 years ago. But it still got present, continuous implications for today. There are still people who have been set free from what happened 2,000 years ago. People who have had their minds and their hearts cleansed by the precious Aima, the blood of Christ. Though it happened in the past, it was perfect that that work has still got present implications, present blessings, present power. It is a continuous, continuous, supernatural resultant thing that is occurring because of what happened in the past. It was given to you, Pilate, perfectly given, completed, that whatever happens and transacts between you and me is going to have a continuous fallout in a beneficial way for those who come in the future. For my blood out of their belly will flow living rivers of life because of what is going to occur today. What judgment you're going to make today. And it doesn't absolve you from what you are doing. It's just that God's head will use it for what they are doing. And also Pilate is passive. In other words, the action is being done on the subject. Not by the subject. What is occurring is me dying. Me going to the cross. My father's using you. But it's going to be done on me because it was foreordained. You're not active in this. It's not by your arm. It's not by your power. It's not by your ability, your prowess. It's not by your skill. It's not by your aptitude. You're passive in this. This is something that the dream team are doing. This is something that the God's head is doing. This is a porn pilot. But that does not absolve you from your decisions. Therefore, the one who delivered paradidomai, the one who yielded me up, the one who yielded me up. How many yield up Christ? How many surrender Christ? How many give over Christ? 
for one reason or the other. How many surrender Christ for their raving and their partying? How many yield up Christ to burn more weed? How many yield up Christ in order to smoke more crack? How many yield up and surrender Christ in order to pursue a career and to worship the career more than they worship him who owns a thousand cattle on a thousand hills where he says the gold is mine, the silver is mine and not that he's come to take away our career it's not mutually exclusive it's not evil or it's either God or career no Abraham was rich Job was rich but the difference is that we don't worship these things over Christ seek ye first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you but no they yield up Christ they surrender Christ they choose other idols in place of Christ and Christ says no whoever delivered me whoever paradidomai whoever yielded me to you they've got the greatest sin it was Johann Wolfgang von Goethe German writer, 1700s again, who said, the soul that sees beauty may sometimes walk alone. Pilots, you might have to walk alone. You might have to walk alone, pilot, to do what you know you should do. You might have to walk alone. Interlude. It's as if pilots heard the Nazarene whisper. So what's on the charge sheet, pilot? Now that we're getting to close quarters. Looking back on it. On this precipice, pilot now walked. Trying to fix in his mind what precisely it was about one of the hostile actors he faced. Caiaphas, the high priest. What was it that made Caiaphas so disconcerting? It was this. Caiaphas was like one of Rome's first triumvirates. The triumvirate was made up of three people who in all intent and purposes ruled Rome. Prominent politicians in the late Roman Republic, Julius Caesar, Pompey, Marcus Licinius Crassus. Pilate's grandfather told Pilate that Crassus was a social path. His indiscriminate and detached friendliness, which you knew, would never waver or diminish, even if he had just decided to have you killed. This is the very perilous game of chess Pilate was wrapped up in. Just like the Roman people knew, all the triumvirates eventually always fall out. In this dangerous chess game, who was going to be king? Who was going to be the pawn in this delicate saga of a balance of power? However, the other dilemma for Pilate, 
He's facing an ugly reality. He is being assaulted by the truth, which aggressively is trying to intrude. We'll finish up with the denouement. Where we pull things together and we answer some questions. The denouement. Pilot's fear. We ask the question. Pilot demonstrated fear in his engagement with Christ. When did it happen? And why did it happen? Verse 8. He had the vile people to govern, Pilate did. And it was not an easy matter to keep them quiet. Some suppose that Pilate's fear arose from hearing that Jesus had said he was the son of God. Because Pilate, who was a polytheist, meaning... He believed God. He believed it was possible for the offspring of the gods to visit mortals. This is the culture that Pilate came from. This is like Virgil's book, The Aeneid, where it speaks about gods, the Roman gods visiting man and trying to come against Aeneas and some of the gods trying to help Aeneas and speaking about the beginnings of Rome. It's also where he would have read the literature as a child and been brought up in the culture of Homer who lived round about 800 BC who wrote the Iliad as well as the Odyssey and it speaks about Achilles and this is where you get Achilles Hill and that epic book was all about gods coming in flesh and visiting the people and fighting in wars and fighting against human beings and helping kings and dethroning kings and this is what Pilate would have believed this was his faith this was his religion and so when Caiaphas says he says he's the son of God the Bible says he was afraid this is no atheist. This man ain't no someone who sits on the fence like an agnostic. This man believes that the gods visit. And he's petrified. He's thinking, has one of the gods, has Zeus dispatched? One of the gods, has Jupiter dispatched? One of the gods in human flesh? If that be the case... He's dealing with something far greater, far larger, something far more spine-chilling than he originally thought. Could Jesus be a visitation of one of the gods? Verse 9, And went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Beyond all doubt, the question is relating not to Jesus's mission. The question is asking, what is your origin? Are you a God? Have you come from Mount Olympus? 
What the Greeks and the Romans believed was the mountain where all the gods dwelt. The man is afraid at this point. The denouement. When Pilate turns into a prophet. John 19 verse 14. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the king and he said to the Jews, behold, your king, behold, day, surprise, your king, surprise, behold means surprise, behold. Why is it a surprise? And who for? It was prophetic. Why? Caiaphas in the future will be in excruciating pain. It had become the center point of Caiaphas existence since being thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire dominating Caiaphas, his entire being, as surely as the flaming Red Sea dominated Caiaphas' world from horizon to horizon. Its cruel currents had swept Caiaphas far from the barren brown cliffs of the shore and into the endless heaving nightmare beyond. Eventually, those currents had carried Caiaphas from the land of eternal daylight into the sea of eternal night. Surprise, Caiaphas, you're in hell. Caiaphas remembered his final sunset as the bloated red orb sank below the horizon, never to rise again. The sky overhead faded, first to pale grey, then to black, until only a narrow band of amber stretched across the lonely horizon, giving evidence to a red sun far beyond. Yet that bow of light was fading as Caiaphas, the high priest who got Christ crucified, was carried deeper into eternal night. Only the flames illuminated Caiaphas' surroundings now. Not that there was anything to see beyond the black boiling ooze, heaving and churning in an endless dance of suffering. Surprise, Caiaphas, you're in hell. Once even Caiaphas, with even tanned skin and became a reddish-brown hide covered with boils and sores that erupted and healed in a never-ending cycle of destruction and regeneration as his body's incredible healing power fought an eternal battle with the scalding red lava that engulfed him. Beneath his burnt flesh, his blood boiled within his veins, giving rise to his own unique pain, a pain which penetrated to the depths of Caiaphas' being. Surprise, Caiaphas! You're in the lake of fire! The portions of his body above, the rolling red liquid, fared no better, for they were scorched and occasionally charred by the terrible flames that swept randomly across its surface. 
His hair had been totally burned away, leaving only inflamed and scarred flesh covering his head. He had no eyebrows or eyelashes for the parts of his body that could be burned away had been surprised Caiaphas for getting Christ crucified for your instrumentality in that you have just lost your eternal soul surprise behold it day surprise epilogue epilogue a swirl of mist, a whirl of snow, a robe of shadow. It is the last day of autumn. A lesion of black light is churning in the sky. It bulges and swirls like a cauldron of doomsday black. When it clears, it leaves a moon as bright and vile as a drop from a blood oath. In these conditions, there is a monster on the loose, and Pilate is the monster hunter to find it. When Pilate started out on his quest, the rivers were kingfisher blue and trickling. Now the river are brandy brown and make the land tremble. Instead of sowing fertility, they wreak havoc as they rumble and thunder through hidden valleys. What ghastly change he thought the river suffered. The mountain range has been purged of its pristine white majesty. It is unwelcoming and hazardous, draped in a fog, dianus. They've changed it into something monstrous too. Goblin shrieks and wolf howls carried down on the wind. Pilate thinks he's getting closer to the monster. He thinks he's getting closer because he is the monster hunter and must find the monster for the sake of his family. He must find this monster and get rid of it before it gets rid of him and those he loves. Pilate then was surrounded by blue and white scenery. He could hear screams. He was swiveling his head, trying to find the source of the screaming. As they were increasing, getting louder, and the shrieks were ear-piercing. The shrieks were spine-chilling. Pilate was anxious to find where was the source of the screeching? Where was the source of the screaming? This is possibly the monster attacking someone. Possibly the monster maybe attacking someone who Pilate loved. It was maddening, high pitch, wailing. I am the monster hunter. I must find the monster. He was clamoring to find the source of this cacophony. Then Pilate felt and was aware of wind whipping around him. He looked at the blue and the white scenery and noticed the white was the clouds. The blue was the sky. He was in the air. Pilate then, conscious of the wind whipping around his flailing limbs and then he realized the roar of terror the blood-curdling screams the blood-curdling terror that he recognized belatedly was coming from his own throat he was falling into a black void Pilate saw the ground but he Pilate could not afford to die he must find the monster just before Pilate hit the ground he heard a voice like thunder you're the monster the pilot 
pilot slams into the ground and immediately he shoots up, soaked in sweat, immersed in perspiration in his own bed, like his wife experienced. It was a dream. No, it was a nightmare. Pilot felt empty. As his wife woke up next to him, Pilate felt spent. He felt empty. He felt a sort of kenosis. A kenosis that he's all emptied out. Part three. In the balance of power next week, kenosis.